Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi. Welcome to episode 18 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with Iggy Pop and filmmaker Jim Jarmish. We were in front of an audience at the Detroit Film Theater in October of 2016, following the premiere screening of Gimme Danger, Jim Jarmish's film about the Stooges. Iggy, how does it feel to see yourself up there from all those years ago? You know, it, honestly, uh, I'm here in Detroit. It was just an honor for me, and it was an honor that Jim would take the interest in the group and that anyone, that you all would ha have enough interest to check it out. And I enjoyed the bits where you laughed. Uh, <laughs> I got a kick out of that. That's really specific to us here. It's... Especially, well, I'm not going to say, there are a couple of them. That was, that was really enjoyable. Yeah. And to share the music, you know. Right. The rest of it, it's only the third time I've seen the film. I saw it once alone. He sent it to me. And then uh, once in Cannes, and this is the third time. So I'm still seeing new things. I have, like, memory loss, <laughs> you know. So it's always, it's always, last week is always fresh, you know. <laughs> Jim, how did you and Iggy meet? Oh, man, we met quite a long time ago in New York through mutual friends, musician friends. Uh, it was over 20. Dougie Bone. Dougie Bone, a drummer who played with Iggy and uh, some other people, but that was like, wow, 25 years ago yeah. or so. Do but I, I, I object to one thing he says about his memory because he's got an incredible <laughs> For memory. For certain things, yeah. Well, I don't know, man. I, I wish I had that kind of memory. Well, maybe not, actually. When you were interviewed, you did all the interviewing. You interviewed Iggy, right? Yes, yes. Jim did all the interviewing of you, right? It was just the two of you? Yes, all that he interview? did it personally, and it was, uh, he was a little bit aggressive. I knew he would be. <laughs> we, well, we called it interrogation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, it was not a puff interview, you know? How many hours are actually there of that, the interview footage? How much interview time was there? I think 15, maybe. Hours? Yeah, yeah, something like about that. Ten hours one day, which is real hard, and then about half of that maybe the, the next yeah, day. Yeah, I think there's, I don't know, and 14 then a hours? A little extra bit with me and Scotty, so maybe 20. Yeah. So when, that footage with Scotty must have been just before he passed away. How, how long after uh, that did he pass? Footage was in, I can tell you, it was in May of 2013. 13? Yes, mm -hmm. the... Yeah, when uh, Ready to Die was coming out. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that James Williamson said in there that was just sort of near the end that really struck me is when you had to find space to perform above him. Or I, where you I had, said where that. Where you said yeah. that, where you had to find space to perform. Sonic. Sonic Sonically, space, yeah. Was that a difficult transition for you to make? A difficult decision? Transition from the way you had been singing to have to yeah, sing differently. Singing a more my natural octave, right. almost like speaking with on Funhouse right. and the first album. Yeah, it was really difficult and um, it kind of became like this quest for manhood. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like, can I, can I fight the guitar from outer space or something? It was, it was okay, you know, and I, I was trying to do, I always loved Little Richard and that ripping, uh, or, or Mitch Ryder, uh, that ripping sort of, that ability to shred a vocal, and I didn't have that physicality, but I tried to do it in other ways, 
and mostly speaking. They're very few, I don't sing many notes on that album, some. On the two ballads, I sing more. The rest of it, there's no real melody to my part on Search and Destroy, but when I go out and play it now, everybody sings along. Would you ever get to a point where you would lose your voice entirely from singing that way? I used to lose my voice doing it all the time. Uh, it was, uh, there were only a few proper performances that I ever did vocally of that particular number. Uh, it's one of those things, there were a few numbers in that group where I was pig-headedly trying to go beyond what was possible for me. But it, isn't that life? You know, sometimes you want to go That's beyond. That's the Stooges, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I sang it well on the take right. there, mm -hmm. and I sang it well at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I knew I had to. <laughs> that better be good. So, Jim, the thing that hit me the most was if somebody was going to do a documentary or a film about an artist's life that was making music today, there would be tons of footage, and you would have tons to choose from. You didn't have that luxury uh, to make this film. Uh, there was so little, in some ways, archival footage of the Stooges performing, and uh, I wanted to, you to talk about where you guys got the footage from that you did find and how you had to frame this differently when you went to make this film because of that. Yeah, it's hard because also hardcore Stooges fans have seen pretty much almost everything. So, yeah, we searched very hard for uh, new footage and photographs. We got a lot of help from Ben Blackwell from Third Man who was incredibly helpful and led us to a lot of stuff that people had, and he's kind of a collector of footage. So he was extremely helpful, and then we just had really good, helpful research being done. One of the people here that helped, uh, Ariel de Sanfal, is here tonight, and she worked for over a year just clearing stuff. And, you know, a lot of it was like, okay, these really great photographs by this guy that's living in a trailer outside of Santa Fe that doesn't have a phone and doesn't want to talk to anybody. Or, you know, it was a lot of really digging for stuff. But, uh, and then putting it together, I really have to credit the whole rhythm of the film. A lot of it really came from our editors, and I would say, you know, illustrate this, this sequence, illustrate... What, what is being talked about. And uh, Afonso Gonsalves and Adam Kernitz, our dynamic duo of editors, would find things and try different things to, to also keep the film playful and in the style of the Stooges' music, which is um, wild, funny, emotional, sometimes very primitive, uh, and in other ways very sophisticated, you know? So it was a way we tried to find all these things and build something. And then we discovered through our, our producer who's also here, Carter Logan, uh, James Kerr, the uh, animator from Montreal, who we fell in love with his work. So we asked him to animate certain things. So yeah, he, he was fantastic. Because there isn't footage of Scotty wrecking the truck under the bridge and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a, lo a combination of, and, you know, it's got my name, my film, but blah, 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 but, you know, this is a film. We, we were collaborated very carefully with our small unit of collaborators, and it was made by us, you know, so. 
You kept uh, the people, the interviews, the number of people in this film to a very small number, the most tightly knit group, um, the Stooges, and people just outside this group. Why was that? Well, I didn't want to do the formula of getting a lot of outside people to comment on the Stooges, so I wanted it to be the family, the Stooges themselves, um, Mike Watt, of course, also, and Steve McKay, and, and Danny Fields, who's really a family member of the Stooges, and Kathy Ashton, who's literally a family member, you know. And I wanted that because, uh, and I had a hard time stopping myself from two people, um, David Bowie and, and John Cale, who I love and admire, but I knew that if I interviewed them, I'd use it because I love them, you know, but I didn't want them. So I had to f force myself not to, to do them as well. But I, I didn't want outside people talking about the Stooges. It's kind of become a kind of a formula. Do you remember the first time you heard the Stooges? Yeah, I first, I'm from Akron, Ohio. I first heard the Stooges, the first album in 1969, I believe, late 69. Uh, I was 16 and... Uh, and I also heard the MC5 at that period, and these were really bands that spoke, they spoke to me and a small group of friends because it wasn't the California hippie music, it wasn't British stuff, and uh, it was working class, ass-kicking, uh, incredible rock and roll, you know, so it had a big effect, still, still does for me. So how did this film come to be? Iggy, was, did you ask Jim to do this film? Yes, just simply. I <laughs> asked him. <laughs> he should you, try it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Pick a great director <laughs> and say, hey, will you make a movie? <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> he, like, like he did with Ron, though, he gave me some weed, you know. <laughs> Jim, given that you were such a fan of the Stooges and a friend of Iggy's, did you have any reservations about doing a film about somebody close to you? I didn't, actually. I, my, my dilemma was, how do I do it? What do I do? How do I start? What will it be? You know, but immediately my brain was thinking, how and what would it be? So it was never... I mean, I did get nervous later when we sent... Jim a cut of the film when it was close to being done and really I thought okay if he calls me up and says well this kind of sucks you know I'm just gonna put it away I can't because you know he said well you're a Stooges fan you, you, you know I'd love it if you made a Stooges film and there can be and will be maybe other films about the Stooges but uh, but this is our version did your approach change as you started to make the film? Um, I assume you had a certain idea of what you wanted to do, but did that change at all as this film started to come together? Yeah, for sure, but all films for me change constantly, and even the films I write as a script, the f I write only one draft of the script and then start working on it, and it changes by the locations, the actors, the collaborators. It's changing, changing, and then it's finally made in the editing. So yes, it changed a lot, but first having our interrogation with Jim was... Was, it the, was that the first thing you did? 
that was the first thing we did. And uh, then I had it on paper as a transcript. So I was kind of editing the, the paper version of it to try to find this, his oral history and then started adding things, adding things on. And, and luckily, I have to say, the two editors were not just people that, hey, would you like to work on a Stooges film? Do you know about the Stooges? They were hardcore Stooges fans and great editors. So that was like pretty amazing. And Carter Logan, our, my collaborator and the producer also, we were all Stooges fans. You know, we loved the Stooges, so it wasn't hard to want to make something celebrating them. While you were working on the film, Iggy, did you, did you two have much conversation while the film was being put together, or were you pretty distant from it, Iggy? I, sp I stayed way, way out of it. Um, if, uh, you know, if Jim had asked me, hey, uh, Iggy, will you write a song about me? <laughs> then if I said, yeah, then I don't want to hear anything about what kind of song he wants. <laughs> I'll just so it, that was my my uh, tactic was just n not to interfere at all. I would call him every six months or so and just say, "How's the film coming?" <laughs> that was yeah, it. Really. It took a long time, and I, there were you know to finance it and gather the stuff and do other projects in between. We made. Uh, only Lovers Left Alive, a, a lot of it here in Detroit. Set in Detroit, and, have you guys seen it? Yeah. It's set here. And then uh, we, we made Patterson also, so we had other things too. But uh, he always said, look, don't worry about that. It's not a promo film. It's the Stooges story. So it's not, there's not a rush on it. So that took a lot of pressure so that I could really, we could build the film. Iggy, did you see any of it until the almost the final cut? Did he see any of it along the way, or was it only that final, close to the final cut? No, I didn't see anything, and I, I was surprised that he sent me the final cut. I wasn't, I didn't expect it or demand it. If he just sent me, if he just called me and said, "The film's done. I'm sending you the release. Sign it." I would have done that. I, <laughs> I trust him. Was it I, I admire him. What yeah. is it, was it emotional for you to watch it? That's, yeah. You know. Was it emotional when I finally saw it? Yeah. Yeah. In, in certain places, it, it was funny. I, I sat at a kitchen table with one of those little devices, <laughs> you know, the small screen with a time code on it, watching it. And... Almost immediately at first, I'm like, oh, no, we're living with our mothers. Jesus, <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> you know, but at, I immediately capished that this was the, I, I saw the arc of the thing as it developed. And um, and I was basically, my, my main emotion was just uh, delight and intrigue at, okay, what footage are they going to use next from the wider society to illustrate this thing and this story and tie it in, you know, and that, that's what I loved about it. I loved seeing the, the footage of the butt end of a jet plane to illustrate my exit or uh, the Three Stooges jamming on their little instruments, you know. All, that was all, unexpected. All that sort of thing. I just thought that was, thought that was great, you know.
but I, if I had any of the usual, yeah, look, yeah, I, I go through every time I'm exposed to our group, especially in private when there's no one around, I, I go through some cathartic emotion because we did have a rough time getting our point across. Coming up, Iggy Pop talks about the risks of stage diving, the influence of activist John Sinclair, and the early days of the Stooges. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. I'm Andalisi, and here is the conclusion of my conversation with Iggy Pop and Jim Jarmish. Jim, you started the film at, as Iggy said, at their worst point. Why did you decide to start the film that way? Well, I, I was realizing, wow, you know, um, the Stooges, Funhouse, uh, um, raw power are, are some of the most incredible gifts to rock and roll ever, right? And by, yeah, and yet they, they had made these, they had given these things, and then they're 23, 24 years old, and the world has basically pissed on them, and they're going home to their moms, you know? And that really struck me. I didn't even make my first feature film till I was like 26, and I thought, look what they achieved and what the world, what the world said at that time. So I wanted to... I just was drawn to start with that because it was kind of emotional to me to realize, wow, look what they gave and look how they were treated. Iggy, does it surprise you all the interest in the Stooges today? Does it what? Does it surprise you that there's so much interest in the Stooges today? I mean, let's look at Iggy Pop's life this year so far. You've done 51 shows, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You put out a new album. There's this film, the Grammy Foundation. So, the show of drawings coming up in New York that he posed for. And so, this is an incredibly big year for you, and the spotlight is on you and the Stooges, and especially with this film, Jim, it's going to shine a light, especially for a new generation that knows nothing about the Stooges and are curious. This is going to be an incredible education for them. Why do you think, all these years later, there is this interest now, the way it is, in you and the Stooges? There's some sort of sincerity in there somewhere, some sort of little spark of something. Uh, I just don't know what, I wouldn't know what, something Something going on. I don't know. It resonates, uh, and, it, and it surprises me every day. It doesn't surprise me intellectually, but it surprises me personally and emotionally every time I encounter someone and they they share with me their feelings. And for every single human being, it's different, you know? Mm -hmm. Somebody might have, hey, I was at your show 47 years ago, and you know, whatever, (laughs) that's one thing. And for someone else, they might have something they want to tell you about how they feel, or, you know, it's, there was, I played in Buenos Aires a few nights ago, and um, I got a little 
big for my britches, so I, it was a big, big show. And I said uh, in Spanish that I was a little lonesome and I wish some people would come on stage and dance with me and some, some acrobatic giants like got over the bouncers and, and one of the guys, I thought I was gonna get, you know, asphyxiated. He joking me, but it was with love. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like really scary and but I I treasured I treasured <laughs> Yeah Were there well speaking of which it looked a little dangerous for you from time to time um, throwing yourself into the crowd I mean you must have surprised your own self up there Well sure um <laughs> That's just the way my particular life seems to be going, you know. <laughs> that's that's it, you know. You had gotten hurt a few times. Well, I, I get hurt all the time, but um, <laughs> that's what I do. You know? that's, emotionally, also, um, that's part of life, I think. But um, I try to. I'm older now, so I try to give it fifty-fifty. Like I try to be sensible. Half sensible. <laughs> That's pretty reasonable. Do you know when you're going to be half sensible? Like, if you get well, to the edge of the stage, you might not jump. I don't jump as much. I, I jumped. I did two tours this year. I did the first tour on my own. And um, it was my own theater tour. And I wasn't playing any Stooges material, but this little perverse person I carry in my head was going, you better show him that you're gonna jump and that you could jump on him a lot. And, <laughs> and that you could jump and jump again, you know? So I jumped at least one and a half times per gig all across America and Europe. And that was pretty tough. But then the, my own tour after that, uh, people know, and besides, the stage is 15 foot high, you'll die, you know, whatever, so. So I didn't jump so much. I don't really the understand these processes, you know. I wanted to talk to you about one photo that I think is absolutely classic, and that is the photo of you and the MC5 getting signed to Elektra Records at yeah. the same time. Yeah. What was that like to finally get to this record company, and not that it worked out all that well, but you finally get to this point. Well, it point. did. I, that, Electra was good, very good to us. Uh, but they I weren't? know what you, Yeah, it's okay that they... Come on, I mean, you can't expect a suit not to be a suit. But still, <laughs> they, were, they were independent suits. They were junior suits. And they were pretty good. He, Danny was good to you guys. Yeah, you know, at one point, they wanted to hold on to me and make, make me into some sort of a teen singer or something, but they couldn't find me. <laughs> they have the, all these inner, these memos, the legal department to whatever, they just couldn't find me. Stuff. So they were, the guy, the guy who owned the company, Jack Holtzman, had a classical education. He was a real mensch and he loved music. And so he just, you know, as I mentioned in the film, he just gave me a camera and said, you know, good luck, bon voyage, and never tried to put the thumb on me and and uh, they they did do a nice job they 
they gave us a nice logo in the writing. Sometimes it's good. We, we had some good ideas, but none of us were fully civilized individuals. <laughs> and, and when you're not, sometimes it's good to meet someone who ha is and to have an exchange. And I think we had a good exchange with Elector Records. And I think we had a good exchange with David Bowie, more than not so much with Main Man, but in his interest in the group and, uh, and that trip to London, which became really a, a cultural exchange. So, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, we should talk about I'm sorry, I, I interrupted your question. No, and, that was great. But right. Can I say one thing too? Yeah, that photograph is amazing, the who is in it, you know? It's incredible. Yeah. And I also got to say one thing, because our film, and John Sinclair's in that photograph with the five, you know, and Danny Fields, and our film doesn't quite, for me, give the respect that I feel for John Sinclair. Sinclair did a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, we make a little... We make light a little bit of the White Panther Party and that thing, but I, I got to say, John Sinclair was culturally a kind of iconoclast and a, a cultural revolutionary, and I really respect him. And I think he brought a lot of outside jazz to pe the awareness to these musicians and uh, quite an incredible figure. So, John, I mean, it's, uh, I'm allowed to say John was kind of a loose cannon because I'm a loose cannon. And so I can say that about him, but he did just—he did so much. I would—I I wouldn't have never listened to John Coltrane if it wasn't for John Sinclair, and, uh, and he shared—he shared a platform with with us. But that shot was taken in an old Victorian house on what was called Fraternity Row on Hill Street. Uh, on the U of M, on the edge of the U of M campus in Ann Arbor. And I mean, picture anyone's reaction when these fellas came from Detroit and rented that house. There were about 17 of them. And John had these little postcards made up, you know, exact postcard size, and they were purple, and they had a charging white panther on the back. And he had a lot of them. And you turned over the postcard and it basically said, hi, we are the White Panther Party and our program is rock and roll, dope, king in the streets. Now, <laughs> this is Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, this is the spreading oak trees of academia, the little brown jug after the game, you know. <laughs> You know, the, you know the, the, the Korean War veterans running the police department. And this, this, I just looked at that thing and I said, oh my God, this is like, uh, the, you know, there's trouble in River City. You know? <laughs> so so that, was, that, was, that was over to, that's theater at that point, <laughs> you know. So, but it was, it was great and there was a great group of people. And I was... I don't know if I told Jim today, but that house where we signed that was always good. When I was hungry, I could always kind of sneak into the back pantry of that house and get a PB&J, you know? <laughs> so they were, they were nice people and generous people. And, and his, 
I'm sorry, but his partner Lenny Sinclair. She's, <laughs> yeah. She deserves a big Lenny, round of applause. Lenny Sinclair is just one, yeah. of these, one of these prescient, prescient, serious German artists. Amazing footage such that such she has beautiful. given to the world of this period, yeah. too. Jo uh, Jim, was any of her footage used in this film? Yeah, yeah, there's footage of her. So. Wonderful. Yeah, because she used to shoot all the footage of the MC5, and then she took an interest in the Stooges at the same time. She sure much. did. She's, she, all, there are a lot of terrific people in that group of people. All the, the road crews and the, the, the communal... They were, it was a nice bunch of people. But... You know, John... <laughs> just like us. Just you know, like, we found each other. The other night, um, when... Iggy was at the Majestic for the Grammy Foundation with Don Was. I don't know if anybody was there, but it was a pretty special night. It was an amazing night, and one of the things that Don Was said is he cited, when he was asked what changed his life, he said he saw John Sinclair in a purple suit standing outside handing out those postcards. The same postcards, oh my God. <laughs> it and that changed his life. Um, it was seeing John Sinclair and the impact that he I had. I mean, that's a surrealist act. You know, that's Tristan Zara or something, or a Dadaist, you know? I mean, oh my God. <laughs> and eventually, you know, that got him a, it got him some attention, some unwanted attention that led to difficulties for him because You are they, saying this so nicely. What? You're saying this all so nicely. Well, you know. <laughs> Hey, you know. He means to say they put his ass in jail. Here it is. My thanks to Iggy Pop and Jim Jarmish for a lively conversation about the film Gimme Danger and about one of music's most iconic bands. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station WDET and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.